You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is brought to you by 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. They can help you with all your puppy problems. You can find them at sithappens.us. How are you doing tonight, Allison? I'm doing well. You've been working hard preparing this show. When we were out the other night, Chad's like, What's the, what show is Allison working on? Because <laughs> I must have mentioned it offhandedly on, on another yeah. podcast that you were working on something, or maybe you did. And I said, you'll find out soon. <laughs> Okay, so I have a question for you. Okay. What was your favorite toy as a child? Hard question, because yeah. I really liked toys. Generally. I did. I was a, like, I really enjoyed toys. I'm going to have to say the toy that gave me the most play value for the most number of years, mm-hmm. Micronauts. They were little robot guys that had interchangeable parts and stuff. Okay. They would fall under the general category of action figure, which... So like- falls into the general category of male dolls. <laughs> I kind of know where your head is. <laughs> I wasn't actually going to relate it to the, the male doll aspect of it, but I was going to say that, now what if you never had a reason to ever grow up and you had infinite wealth and you were trying to overcome some psychological issues in your family? That part you could probably relate to. Yeah. But s- say you had the wealth to indulge those kind of like innocent childhood So interests. I could... Live in the Micronaut world yeah, forever, yeah. for yeah. instance. I could, I could buy every Micronaut. I could, yeah. Don't, uh, by the way, don't send me Micronauts. <laughs> it's not something I want to collect. So it, it's, it was it's truly just something that, that was, you were able to keep in one portion of your life. It, it's something I liked when I was a child. <laughs> People are very nice and they will send you things like, hey, I thought of you. I heard you like Micronauts. That would be a very nice gesture, but. That pro- isn't what you collect anymore. Yeah, Because exactly. you were able to keep that. In your childhood. Now, <laughs> I did retain one or two Micronauts from my childhood. Mm-hmm. And I guess if I came upon like a box of Micronauts oh, yeah. somewhere. I would sell them. No, you, oh, you mean you would keep them? <laughs> I, well, okay, it would depend on the conditions and so forth. But if they were ones I owned, certain ones, I don't know. I don't know. That whole like nostalgia thing. I'm actually more nostalgic for the toys our kids played with than for toys I played with. Yeah, I can see that. I could part with things that were mine where I could feel like I'm beyond that, but I don't know that I ever will be beyond their yeah, childhood. So. Yeah. so we're talking about toys right now. I'm guessing today's episode is going to have something to do with that. 
It does. It's it's kind of what happens when you don't have to grow up. Interesting. Which is a concept I really like. <laughs> Before we get into that, I'd like to thank our patrons. Thank you so much, patrons. You know what we did last month? What? Two patron episodes. Yeah. And that's the goal going forward. We did one sort of normal patron episode and one more relaxed patron episode. Had a normal element. It had the on-site Site 7 stuff and then... Mm-hmm just some more relaxed stuff where you made fun of me for my hiking clothes basically <laughs> but we're going to be doing Which that i think is a long overdue show really <laughs> <laughs> we'll be doing that going forward two patron shows a month for our patrons exclusive shows you can support the podcast get extra content get those exclusive shows go to patreon.com slash strange familiars they have yearly subscriptions they have monthly subscriptions go ahead and check it out all different tiers of support there patreon.com slash strange familiars if you still want to help us out and don't like the idea of a monthly subscription there's a paypal.me link in the show notes under every episode at strangefamiliars.com you can click that and make a one-time donation once again thank you patrons thank you for your support we could not do the show without you so do we get to know who we're talking about or is this just a general toy not growing up conversation no this is about a specific kind of toy that tends to be one that people retain in later years and that's dolls which is a very polarizing thing to collect because on one hand you have people who are, who think they're amazing little time capsules of youth innocence and beauty and other people who just think they're creepy yeah and there's i i would wager that in the venn diagram <laughs> of of doll collecting and toy collecting generally they, they, there's probably a fair amount of both going on when i do paranormal conferences the last few I've done, I haven't seen this, but for a while there, for a long stretch, it was like haunted, quote unquote, haunted dolls everywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. Every table, every ghost hunting team mm-hmm. had their table with all their electronic doohickeys for hunting ghosts mm-hmm. and also a haunted doll sitting mm-hmm. on it. And it's amazing to me that some of these haunted dolls are like Fisher Price dolls from the 70s. They're not even necessarily like cool looking old yeah, one creepy of, I, dolls. I, like, I think the one that kind of started it all was a, I think it was the Warrens, those uh, paranormal investigators, and it was a Raggedy Ann doll. They had. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, that so, was, they gave it a name like Annabelle or something, you know, but it wasn't like. I'm sitting here looking right past you to this wonderfully creepy antique doll that you have sitting on an instrument in here. Yeah, the, those are weird. They're called boudoir dolls. They're like sort of, they kind of look like flappers and they have these really exaggerated limbs for no reason and sort of flapper hair. But her face over time has started to crack, yeah. <laughs> which has made her look, it's almost like as if her eyeliner, her and she has almost like bat wing eyeliner. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very 1980s goth. Uh, yeah, she, she does kind of look like a, I won't say, <laughs> I was going to say she looks like a Dresden doll. Oh. <laughs> Well, I'm just saying I could put that on my table at and any say, paranormal yeah. convention with a sign that says haunted doll and it would fly. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't do that, by the way. I don't. And she's don't. not haunted, so. Yeah, well, that, that you know of. I mean, who knows what she gets up to when we turn the lights out. <laughs> That's true, which is actually the person we'll be talking about second tonight. So okay. we have the trajectory of two doll collectors, one with insane wealth. And one with insane amounts of free time. (laughs) All right.
So I am um, indebted, of course, to the people who wrote the, the primary source material for both of these, the one um, being the book Empty Mansions by Bill Dedman, who he's the author of this book about, and her name is, it's spelled H-U-G-U-E-T-T-E, but I have heard it pronounced Uget or Uget. Mm-hmm. I will probably butcher it either way, but I think I'm going to go with Uget because that's how I heard him say it within the confines of a uh, lecture I watched. That sounds good. As long as you don't ask me to pronounce it, we're good. Yeah. So I will talk about her first. She's born around the turn of the century, 1906. Her father is much older. In fact, this is his second marriage. He's in his mid-60s, and his wife is in her early 30s. And that might have something to do with the fact that he is one of the leading... They said at one point in time... When they were trying to figure out who was the richest person in America, they said it was either him, this W.A. Clark, or Rockefeller. So you have Rockefeller first, and then even if he's second, and they were counting him as possibly first because if they counted all of the, the money they said that was still in the mines that he owned, he would top Rockefeller. Wow. It just hadn't come out yet. So they had unbelievable wealth from his... Um, sort of dastardly business doings. I mean, it is, this is one of those sort of great American stories and like the evils of capitalism run amok and what can happen when you just have amazing, amazing wealth at your disposal. And so her father was born fairly, I wouldn't say, um, say sort of more humble beginnings than he ended up in outside of Pittsburgh. Copper spoon in his mouth. Yeah, he was born with a copper spoon in his mouth. So he's born like 30 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. He moves to Iowa, becomes a teacher, and then right around the Civil War, he moves to the Montana Territory and becomes the Copper King. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know that when I said Copper Spoon in his mouth. Oh, really? Really? Yeah, yeah. So he I becomes wasn't looking at your notes. a Copper King. He runs a bank, and eventually he becomes a senator who fights against environmental reform, and he does huge amount of damage um, with his mines that, is, that people are still dealing with to this day in Montana. And he bought his seat in the House legislature. When, it be, when that became apparent, he resigned on a day that they knew that the... <laughs> this is like so shady. This is so American. It's so shady. So it comes to light that he's bought his seat in the legislature, basically, because he's paid off the debts of a lot of people around town. And then so he resigns on the day that the person that could appoint a new person is out of town. So the sympathetic person that's there on the day when they need to appoint a new person just appoints him again after he's resigned. (laughs) (laughs) So he's amassed this amazing amount of wealth. And they build this mansion in New York City, 121 rooms for a family of four. (laughs) It's built in 1910, something to the tune of like $250 million or something like that in today's money. It doesn't even last that long. It's torn down in 1927. That was my next question. I was like, is this this some place you could visit? There are photos of it, and it's one of the most gorgeous things. I mean, they said it was garish and sort of a sign of these, like one of those robber baron mansions of that time period where it's like, it, it's hugely tall. And then it has this, you know, you know, my feelings on Mansard Ruth. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's got this sort of like hugely extreme version of a mansard roof with all of this curly Q stuff in it. And can you just imagine growing up in a house with 121 rooms? Now, my thought is also that if you grow up in a house of 121 rooms and things seem sort of impossibly out of control in that regard, that it might 
do your psychology well to pare it down to some smaller rooms that you can control. That's a good point. Her father dies when she's fairly young because he was in his mid-60s when she was born. So he dies in 1925. One of the stipulations of his collecting, and this is part of where she gets it from, he's a huge art collector. He offers all of his art collection to the Met under the stipulation that they must keep it all together and it must never be separated. And they declined. They declined? Wow. They didn't have the room to keep it all together and they couldn't make the promise that it would never be separated by any means. And so it went to the Corcoran in D.C., which is now um, a defunct museum in its own right. And I believe the collection dispersed to the winds, ironically. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, and maybe this you can relate to, the father cuts some of the family out of the will. And she goes on to do the same thing later on when she, when she dies. <laughs> that does tend to run in the family. <laughs> yes. She's not without a social life. This isn't someone who I would, I would say is like an absolute recluse on the, on the manner of, like say, like an outsider artist. I mean, she has friends, she has relations, she has people that she talks to. And for a very brief period of time, she's married. She gets married and within two years is divorced and decides to go and live with her mother again. She has an extremely close relationship with her mother, which is something we'll talk about with the other woman that has a very similar trajectory. And she says, (laughs) she realized, quote, on the honeymoon, I had to go home. (laughs) Now, we are now talking about Uget. Yeah, Uget, yes. I said it. I said the name. Okay. So her father's died. Yeah. This is we're now on to her life. Yeah. So she she gets married for a brief period of time, but then decides she's thought better of it and moves home to be with mummy. <laughs> <laughs> and around this time is when the collecting starts in earnest. Interesting. I, curious, right? <laughs> right. That's, this is psychologically interesting. So she lives with her mother in either with or close to in a series of apartments in New York City. She goes out to places, but she goes out to, say, Paris to buy Christian Dior clothes, but they're not for her. They're for her dolls. Wow. She amasses a doll collection that, at her death, is about 1,157, some of which are upwards of $14,000 apiece. At that time? or At the time that she bought them. Some of them were purchased as late as the 70s. But she also has, she's not exclusive with her collecting, which I kind of love. <laughs> she also collects toy soldiers, castles. She has a man in Japan make elaborate models of tea houses and theaters. These you can actually see online. I mean, if I describe them, I'm not going to do them justice, but they are amazing. It's all about world building. Mm-hmm. That's the part that I really love about it, like the, the idea that you can create your own world. Yeah. We've talked about that before, and I think there's a positive side to neurotic reclusivity. <laughs> it's that it's amazingly creative. It certainly can be. It can be amazingly creative. Yes, I suppose that's true. But I think if you're going to be by yourself for the majority of the time, you, you damn well better be creative, right? I would say so. Whether you're a hermit, a monk... Anybody who might lead a slightly more reclusive life has to have, I think, an amazing mind on, in some capacity. I think she did. She was, But she also had correspondence with relatives, and even she continued to have a, a friendly relationship with her ex-husband who remarried. She wasn't the kind of person who was 
without friends. She, I think she just preferred the company of herself and her own possessions. And then when she was older, uh, she went into the hospital for skin cancer surgery and just decided to stay. She had, at that point in time, a house in California, a house in New York, several apartments. I think she had places in Paris, France, where that's where she was born. And she stayed in that one room for the next 20 years until she died at the age of 104. In the hospital? In the hospital. Must have been a much nicer hospital than the one I was in. Well, she just stayed in a tiny room and kind of gave herself round-the-clock care. She'd call the butler in the morning and say, these are the things I need from the apartments, or get this particular doll furniture from this room. And you can see there are actual just rooms with shelves of extraneous doll furniture. Okay, so <laughs> she's in this hospital room. Yeah, and everything else, all of, she owns all of these properties, all of, like all over, and they're just... Like, no one's lived in some of them for 50 years. Some, no one's lived in some of them for 20 years. There are people that have worked for her for 30 years who have never met her. She has an agent that buys her dolls for her and goes to the auction. And this is one of the, the most prestigious uh, doll vendors referred to her as the client because they didn't know until she was dead. Who she was. Who she was. I'm stuck on this hospital thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she if, went to the uh, hospital to have some skin cancer removed. If you have immense wealth mm -hmm. and you could stay at the finest hotel in New York forever for the rest of your life. Or your own damn apartment. Or your, own, or your own awesome apartment or one uh -huh. of your multiple houses. And yet you choose to stay in the hospital. Her quote was that she thought it was safer, which I think reveals a little bit of what's going yeah, on. Yeah, I, I, I get that. But I'm just saying it must have been a much nicer hospital room than the one I was in. <laughs> I just, I think I don't about, know. Is there a I nice... was crawling the walls and it was just a, a few days. But imagine if you could hire your own team of support team to be there and do whatever you want. Even still, I don't know. That seems like. I it is a form of imprisonment. I mean, Did she you... bring dollhouses into the hospital room? I believe so. She had things that she needed there, and then they would go back to the various places from whence they came because she didn't have a lot of room. Oh, so she'd like bring in the, this dollhouse today, and then it'll be there, and then she'll take it back and then bring me another one. Yeah, I think she just loved the idea of collecting. It's, she had a particular doll. She loved, um, this is French, so sorry to my French teacher, Jumeau Triste dolls. Triste means sad. So they were... There's this, a particular, and I'm not a, a doll person. I can barely tell the difference between like porcelain and china and all those, the different kinds of dolls. But her collection was amazing. And she would tell the person that was her agent that would buy, was buying them that price was no object. Like she would, you know, if this doll cost $25,000, it cost $25,000. It didn't matter to her. Wow. She would also do amazing things like just if she'd hear a story, a human interest story about someone who had taken care of someone else for a long period of time, she might send a check to them for $30,000 for all they did for someone else, for a friend of a friend or something like that. Though the author points out that, you know, with the amount of wealth that she had, that's sort of like, you know, kicking $10 towards someone on the street. Right, right. <laughs> but at the same time, it, it, is a, it is a gesture of kindness. And they said that she was specific, but she was kind. Mm-hmm. The thing I think that I find interesting about these sort of eccentric collectors is sometimes they are amazingly long-lived. And she lived to be 104 years old. Wow. 
So in fact, when the, the man who wrote the story, the way he found out about it is he said he was starting to look for real estate. And he was quickly found he was priced out of the market he was looking in. So he said, I just decided to look at houses that were incredibly out of the, my price range. And he came upon this mansion in Connecticut. And she was the owner. And they said, oh, well, the, no one's lived in this house since the 50s. And this was in, like, I guess, maybe 2000s, early 2000s. Wow. No one had seen the owners. <laughs> and so then he, that's when he kind of dove into the story. And his co-author was a uh, relative of hers and had uh, amassed a lot of the family history. Oh, interesting. Including recording some voicemails that he had gotten from her. They had had a, a pretty friendly relationship, and she was very with it up until the end. Could remember dates and times. She was booked to be on the Titanic, but they decided at the last minute to take a different... One of her cousins died on the t Titanic. I mean, wow. this is the kind of wealth that we're talking about. Right. Like, just unbelievable wealth. And I guess you could choose with unbelievable wealth to be a philanthropist. You could choose to be just as greedy as possible and try to gain even more wealth. You could be an eccentric collector. What's your choice? I mean, you know, I, you're going to say honest. philanthropist, but... I'm going to split my time between philanthropy and collecting. Yeah. So she does a little bit of both. And when she dies, there's quite a bit of a controversy because here are some people who are in the will, the caretakers who have taken care of her for the past 30 years. Seems justified. Mm -hmm. Her banker, her accountant, they all make it into the will, but none of her extended family makes it into the will. Now, a lot of them did get money earlier, like when her parents died, and this mm -hmm. was her portion of it, and she didn't have direct heirs as such. But it did start quite a hubbub as to where all of this money was going. She never wanted to write a will, he said. She would keep putting it off. And so actually they ended up, a lot of them, even though a lot of it was donated to this arts fund that she had created, they spent an inordinate amount of money in taxes. Now, they still did clear millions upon millions of right. dollars. <laughs> but uh, I would love to see a tour of any one of these houses. They said even when she was younger, the house that they lived in in that 121-room mansion they had spent $120,000 to put in a pipe organ into one of, one of the art galleries. Oh, wow. And then they would have people come and have tickets and then come through the house for tours. She was an artist. I can't imagine the, the pressure of having like an art gallery filled with like the finest paintings in your house and having people tromp through to see that and then think that you're ever going to meet those expectations. She was an artist. Yeah, she was an artist as well, and actually a fairly good artist. I'm going to re read some little tidbits that I found about you get in the newspaper. Okay, cool. I guess another thing that probably could potentially lead you down this road is, is the death of other significant family members. Her sister dies while they're on a, a trip to the lake. She, this happens about the time that she's 12 years old. I find that really sig like a significant time yeah. to experience a trauma that her sister was just a few years older, about 18. Every picture that you see of her as a child, she's holding a doll. Oh, interesting. Like every, every picture I've seen of her, she's, she has dolls when she's little. She's carrying a doll in every picture. And if you're 12 and you have an older sibling die, I feel like that's a, that's a really, especially at that time, 12 in the teens and 20s probably means a little different. Yeah. Something different than it does now as far as in like an innocence factor, but it's just the precipice of any sort of adulthood. Right. That's the time where you're, you're sort of turning. And you're playing with dolls, but you're also like, oh, 
so and so is cute or and the world's opening up world's in a way opening, yeah you're starting to see this world beyond your dolls beyond your toys yeah and you can run towards one or the other mm-hmm. and then there's like i find i think 12 is that real middle ground where you're like i still want to play with toys but i also have a, i want to be grown up i don't want people to think i'm a baby right she didn't have to make that decision yeah she could just be a baby so this is a, a sadly an article about her sister dying capitalist daughter dies and this is from the evening public ledger philadelphia pennsylvania 9th of august 1919 word was received in the city yesterday of the death of miss louise amelia andre clark daughter of william andrews clark noted capitalist and formerly united states senator from montana who died suddenly yesterday at rangley lake maine where she was sojourning with her mother and sister miss clark who was 18 years old was the first daughter of mr clark by his second marriage her sister, Miss Eugenie Clark, and her mother were with her when she died. I believe she died of maybe um, meningitis, I think. Oh, okay. It was a, a sudden thing that she... So not a drowning death. Was... No, no, it wasn't like an accident while they were there. It was uh, I think it was meningitis. And so her sister is snuffed out right as she's about, she's about to enter adulthood. Right. Like, officially. Yeah, I think there's some... So you can really... Some psychological impact there. I don't have the tools to unpack that, but I do feel like symbolism is important. And if I can't... Maybe I don't have the tools to say this psychologically or make those leaps. I feel like symbolically, I can. I feel qualified to make those leaps. And yeah, I would I say, yeah. like, we're, we're starting to see the, the genesis of why someone would want to hold on to a doll forever. Mm-hmm. Also, and I think this is totally valid in the absence of having children, dolls are a a great comfort to a lot of people, especially for losses or um, infertility issues and and such. And there's a huge, you know, market at this point now for those dolls that are, I'm going to say creepily realistic, the ones Mm. that look like real babies. Yeah. Here's an article. It appeared in a Wisconsin newspaper, but it's just reprinted from something from New York. Uh, Mrs. Ujek Clark who inherited millions from her father, William A. Clark, the copper magnate and senator, has won considerable recognition as an artist. She's planning an exhibition in Paris. She is an accomplished musician. Her mother actually was an accomplished musician as well and loved to play harp. I forgot to tell everybody the other thing that she collected besides all these was Stradivarius violins. Oh, wow. And she had several. Wow. Purchased from the Paganini family. Oh, wow. But she did things like one of the people that I think worked for her, her, her son had played violin as a child, but had was in his 20s, and she sent him one. Oh, my goodness. Just sent her home with it to give to him. She said, he'll start playing again. Wow. <laughs> wow, I guess so. Yeah. Or you could sell it and just never have to work again. Yeah, there's that, too. <laughs> When you say her mother played the harp, I can't help but think of one of my favorite performers, Harpo Marx, <laughs> who would have been around at the time. Yeah. As someone who's attempted to play harp, mm-hmm. and I'm a cheater. I don't yeah. play harp right, not even folk harp. I don't play it correctly. I figure out ways to game the, the system. Watching clips of Harpo Marx play harp is <laughs> one of my favorite things. Because he's legitimately talented. Oh, the, it's not, that's not the joke part of the... Yeah, the talent that guy had was stunning. I mean, just a stunning musician. Absolutely love it. So anyway, that's my aside when harp playing. You had to and, bring the Three Stooges into my little doll show. It's the Marx Brothers. <laughs> the Marx Brothers. Not the Three Stooges. Nevertheless, I encourage people to go online and see 
some of the ridiculous remains of her collections, which the sad part about devoting your life to collecting is that almost universally, when you die, you can't control what happens to it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then it's dispersed to the winds, and then something that was not a collection before you had it becomes a collection and then is thrust back into the arena of not a collection again. I believe the phrase in common vernacular is, you can't take it with you. Yeah, you really can't. But you could probably pay to store it for a long time, you will. <laughs> True. <laughs> the bulk of her fortune went to the, the arts fund that she had, and her family had set up in California. So hopefully it's doing some good there. That's a quick little synopsis of a much more interesting book than I could... I, I really think it's worth a read. This isn't a, a paid promotional thing. This book came out like maybe 10 years ago or so, and I uh, read it at the time and loved it about the same time that I read the book about the second personality. Now, I kind of always had it in my head, like their stories would get kind of conflated in, yeah. in when I remember them because they're so similar. And then I that's why I wondered if there isn't, you know, like a psychological component to this avenue of collecting. Now, you get mm -hmm. collected dolls. Did we talk about her doll houses? Well, yeah, be, I mean, she had the, the models of the Japanese tea houses, and she had German fairy tale houses with hand-painted insides in them. Oh, wow. And then she had all manner of just regular doll collections. And then, ironically, you know, like all of her apartments and things just became sort of empty doll houses because they'd have these elaborate fixtures and settings and... Um, bedding, everything was just elaborate and waiting for someone to come and live there. And no one ever did. Oh, wow. It's like an empty doll. I know that's why they call it empty mansions. I mean, they really were like kind of like empty doll houses. She lived, you said, to be in her hundreds. Yeah, she passed away in 2011 and she was 104. Oh, so not that long ago, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And she lived in the hospital that long? For the over the last 20 some years of her life. She just stayed in the hospital. She just oh. stayed in the hospital. I know that's the part I, that you just can't get I, past. Just having been in the hospital recently, it's <laughs> yeah, I, that's something. Maybe if you had your own staff. and I, I guess so, yeah. Well, there's also this idea of safety. And she talks about this at one point, too. Like They were living in California in 1925 during the time of one of the big earthquakes. Mm. And her mother built this mansion, a new mansion after that, because she said she didn't think it was safe. So I'm thinking that there might have been an aspect of her mother who had some neurotic tendencies, maybe, or some overprotective tendencies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe being widowed at a fairly young age. I mean, losing your daughter. And losing your daughter, yeah. yeah. I think that the crackdown on control and safety might be paramount. So her collection is... Dispersed. Dispersed. It happens. To be recollected. Yeah, there you go. So other collectors are probably enjoying it. And we talk about that a lot, even in photo collecting, that you're not an owner, you're a caretaker for a time mm -hmm. period, and then hopefully it'll go to someone else who can be a caretaker for a while. I think that, well, it's also good rationalization where you're like, well, it's not, I'm not really owning these. I'm just taking care of them or I have to, and then you can get in this sort of savior complex where you're like, <laughs> well, I have to get them because I'll take good care of them kind of right. thing, or I'll keep the history with it. I think we all know those are just rationalizations to have uh, For apartments full of dolls. <laughs> so we have a new sponsor I'd like to talk about. They're MHZ Choice. That's MHZ or Z for our British listeners. You can find them at mhzchoice.com.
There are streaming services like Netflix or Hulu or HBO Max. We've been watching for the past few weeks. Yeah, it really came at a great time because I just kind of feel like I got to the end of TV. Yeah, there's a lot of shows that I'm going to say you, meaning the general you, had no clue even exist there. yeah yeah so they primarily call from all of these great shows from different countries and so they're foreign language mysteries and dramas from europe scandinavia i think they have some welsh shows of course these are in other languages but they do their own subtitling in-house they have their own people that do the subtitling so they don't use whatever subtitling comes with the programs and i think it's really nice like their subtitling i think is really it's yeah, easy to follow. It's not the kind where you feel like you're racing to read it before the next group of words pop up. So there's a lot of crime stuff. There's a lot of mysteries. I think there's a lot for our listeners to get into. I mean, like Yeah, I there's said, a lot of shows with really kind of dark elements. There's like a lot of historical shows, shows with an art bend to them. I've watched quite a few of them and really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoy the channel. Strange Familiars listeners... In the U.S. and Canada, you can get your first month free. You go to mhzchoice.com. Use the promo code STRANGE at checkout. After that, it's $7.99 a month. There's no commitment. You can cancel any time. You watched a show called Missing on there. You watched the whole series. I did in like two nights. It was one of those things where I was, it was completely compelling. And we've both started watching because we got a preview of a show that's starting next week. The series is called Secta. It's a Russian series about a cult. We'll be talking about it week to week. You guys can watch it with us and kind of follow along. So far, I really okay. like it. Yeah. It's a really, really interesting show. Go ahead and check out mhzchoice.com. Remember, the promo code is strange. You can get the MHZ Choice channel on Amazon Prime, Cox, Xfinity, or the Roku channel. But in order to redeem that code, you have to go right to mhzchoice.com. Use the promo code strange at checkout. So this second part of our doll obsessives, I actually know this person. Well, not personally, <laughs> but like, I know of this person. Whoa, that was going to put a spin on it. <laughs> the other one I'd, I'd never heard of until mm. you told me about her. We've had this person's books. I know at least since we lived at the other house. Did we find one of her books at the antique store in Glen Rock? No, I found it at a library sale. It was, was it a library sale? Yeah, because okay. she primarily wrote children's books, so it was in like the remainders of the library for like like a May Day festival or something. And I okay. got, I didn't get the book that's the most common one. I got one of her photo books about horses. But you might have seen this a sort of iconic picture, which out of context looks exceedingly naughty. It's from the fifties, and it it's a, a spanking scene between. A doll and a teddy bear. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. It's it's probably the most controversial part of this whole book, and it hints at the undercurrents of this woman's life. So we're talking about a woman named Dare Wright, which I know is sort of an unusual name. So her first name is Dare, D-A-R-E, and then Wright, like W-R-I-G-H-T. And she um, was a photographer who whose most iconic book is called The Lonely Doll. And you might have seen it. It's like... Um, it couldn't be more quintessentially 50s. Like, yeah. it, there's a like a gingham kind of check around the border. And then there's a photo of the little doll, Edith, and um, the two little teddy bears that keep her from being a lonely doll. There was a follow-up book or two also, weren't there? Oh, yeah. Edith had, and the teddy bears had quite a few adventures. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and she, she made that work for quite a few years. And then she did like photo books about 
horses and she was particularly interested in sea life and animals and things like that and things that pertain to children she was a book author and only that her photos were sort of the narration of the book right but she also led an incredibly odd existence to describe her i would say she looks like someone who in the present day has had surgery to try to look like Barbie. But this is at a time before plastic surgery. She just legitimately looked like that. Yeah, she was kind of a pretty woman. She was. She was a model. Yeah, she um, was on the cover of Cosmopolitan. And, oh, wow. And was a Vogue model before she started to be a photographer for Vogue. Now, I believe there's a dare right Instagram, maybe. Oh, I'm sure there is. I yeah. think, or maybe a Facebook page. I can't remember. There's Somehow I'm, I see dare right stuff pop up every now and then there's a biography written by gene nathan i think that maybe 10 years ago and now one of dare right's relatives uh her goddaughter who's in her 70s has just written a book as well dare right was actually born in canada in 1914 and but she grew up in cleveland when her parents got divorced her her brother left and went with her father and she stayed with her mother who was an artist in cleveland she doesn't meet her brother again till they're in their 20s. And we'll put a little pin in that because that becomes very important. The family is like kind of quite literally separated into the feminine and the masculine. Interesting. And they stay in this sort of like hyper-feminized world of the two of them where they're best friends and they're the only people they talk to. And they sleep together into old age, spooning each other and like this incredibly intimate relationship. I'm not saying necessarily something was inappropriate about it. It was definitely like all encompassing, bordering on smothering mm -hmm. kind of relationship. I wonder if that is one of the components for becoming a, a reclusive doll collector or obsessive is this deep connection with the feminine or the mothering force, or in a way to control something else when you have been so controlled. The latter seems. Or to model your own feelings on being a lonely doll. Perhaps, yeah. And Dare really does seem to be this very um, lonely character who, you know, when sometimes you meet people who have maybe had a career as a child or they've been forced to grow up too quickly or forced to never grow up, and mm -hmm. in the same time are forced to never really truly grow up in the same way. It's like if you miss certain milestones at the right time you can't really go back and do them you know like say yeah. say you go to college at 12 while you might be able to fulfill the same academic things that other people that are in their 20s are doing your social game is always going to be lacking mm -hmm. you know and you can't really go back and make up those milestones in retrospect or at different times you know if you miss it you kind of miss it yeah and so maybe there's certain psychological things that take over when you miss certain really important parts in your development that could be the case. Uh, so both Dare and her mother were um, amazing artists. Her mother did portrait paintings of like all of the Illuminati, not literally, of Cleveland and a lot of important figures. There's one of Churchill she did, important political figures. She was an amazing artist, someone that would probably be difficult to rise above, mm -hmm. technically. Dare became a model in, in the 30s. She modeled for... Vogue and Cosmopolitan, and she was incredibly beautiful. But she wasn't in New York City, like, by herself at 14, like one of those stories of models. She was there with her mommy, mm -hmm. whom she still lived with. I'm going to read to you a little story about what happens to Dare in the 40s, and then kind of explain some of the, the oddness that surrounds 
Dare and her family and why this particular scandal might be difficult for her and her family. So in the late 40s, Dare is in New York City as a model and she's learning photography. So Dare becomes embroiled in a someone else's divorce. So this is an article about a scandal that befell Dare in the late 40s. This is in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette on the 8th of July, 1949. Wife details hilarious night of castor oil air, asks 1,000 weekly alimony as she hears of a laughing husband and giggling girl. <laughs> Socially prominent Mary Amelia Veit Marsh, wife of castor oil king Fenimore Cooper Marsh, and one of her brothers told today how they caught a laughing man, her husband, with a giggling girl one hilarious and undressed evening in a room in a Manhattan motel. Mrs. Marsh would like the final laugh, a thousand dollars a week, temporary alimony. Pretty good for the late forties. Yeah. Mrs. Marsh, who said Fenimore had inherited securities worth three million five hundred thousand dollars to five million, and was, to her knowledge, president of the Baker Castor Oil Company, asked Manhattan Supreme Court for a divorce. She requested that the thousand dollar weekly be paid her pending trial of the action. As she told it, on the night of May 26, she went to room 830 at the Hotel Bristol, accompanied by her brothers, Henri and Richard Veit, and private detectives. A female person, Dare Wright, opened the door, Mrs. Marsh related. We all went into the room and found the room occupied by my husband and the said Dare Wright. At that time, she said Dare Wright was wearing a yellow negligee and a pair of bedroom slippers. But Mrs. Marsh, who didn't arrive at the scene until 10 p.m., left out all the fun in her petition. <laughs> <laughs> Brother Henri, who got there at eight, said in a corroborating affidavit, I heard the voice of a man and woman coming from the room. One of these voices I identified as the voice of my brother-in-law, and the other was a female voice. I heard laughter and giggling. Not laughter and giggling. <laughs> oh, it gets worse. The word diaphanous comes up. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so this is from the New York Daily News. So this is from December of 1949. Peeper says his eyes popped. A patch of clear glass, one sixteenth of an inch wide, is plenty big enough for a private eye to peep through. That's like basically a fingernail. Richard Shorten, head of the Shorten Bureau of Investigation, testified yesterday in Supreme Court. He was the principal witness in the divorce trial of Mrs. Mary Amelia Marsh, socialite wife of Fenimore Cooper Marsh, the castor oil heir, who alleges that her husband and Dare Wright, a pert blonde model, committed adultery in room 839 of the Hotel Bristol the evening of May 16th. The dates have changed. <laughs> Shorten and Mrs. March led a raid on the room that night and found the model in a yellow negligee and Marsh in shirt and trousers trying on a bow tie. <laughs> he climbed up to peep. Just before they went in, Shorten told Justice Kenneth O'Brien and a jury of 11 men and one woman. He got on a table and peeped into the room. Blue paper covered the transom, he declared, except for that one sixteenth of an inch. And what he saw convinced him Mrs. Marsh had a case. Nahum Bernstein an attorney retained by Miss Wright to defend her good name, asked if the model's negligee was diaphanous. The six-foot-three-inch Shorten looked puzzled. What's that, he asked. <laughs> diaphanous, Bernstein repeated. Shorten still hesitated. What is it, like transparent then? <laughs> Bernstein inquired. It could have been, the witness answered. I didn't see it, though. The trial will continue today when Miss Wright may take the stand. So here we are the next day. And Miss Wright is about to take the stand. This is from the Daily News News in New York, New York, 10th of December, 1949. Marsh divorce trial squared. Quick as the bang of a judge's gavel, the very social Mrs. Mary 
Amelie Marsh suddenly withdrew her divorce suit against Castor Oil Air Fenimore <laughs> Cooper Marsh in Supreme Court. After a brief huddle among counsel, it was announced that Marsh had settled for $28,000 a year alimony for the misses and their two children, and Mrs. Marsh expressed regrets she had ever started the suit. Model gets an apology. She was particularly apologetic to Dare Wright, blonde model with whom she had accused Marsh of committing adultery in the Hotel Bristol. I wish to withdraw all charges against Miss Dare Wright made in my divorce proceedings, Mrs. Marsh told the court. I sincerely regret that Miss Wright has been involved in this suit. The judge is tickled. The sudden end of the suit, which a jury of 11 men and one woman had been hearing for a week, pleased Justice Kenneth O'Brien to no end. I'm happy, he told the jury, to announce that this little litigation has been settled. It has been most unfortunate that such a suit and its charges had to be brought by those very nice people. The proceedings are terminated chiefly for the sake of the children. He said Mrs. Marsh would sign a statement of apology to Miss Wright, and Miss Wright in turn will accord her a release. I don't know what happened in the interim there, if she just got to a certain amount of money that she felt was acceptable and decided to pull the court case, or Mm -hmm. if someone really was protecting Dare. The thing that makes it odd about this, that she would be involved in some way, is that she's rumored to have been a virgin into very late life. She never had an extended relationship. She had a lot of weird substitute relationships, and least of which being a doll and two bears, but her mother was like a best friend to her. And like I said previously, when she was in her 20s, she was reunited with her brother, who they had been separated when they were two and five. So they didn't never knew each other as a kind of brother and sister figure. And they embark in this incredibly intense relationship where they realize how much they mirror one another. They talk in the same way. They look the same. They're both like incredibly beautiful people. This is where I saw someone on the internet. They could call it a like sort of an homage to V.C. Andrews. I don't know. You'd have to be of a certain age to have read Flowers in the Attic, which was like makes something that's a rather taboo subject into young adult fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But there were rumors that she and her brother had had something of a relationship, if not an extreme closeness akin to what she had with her mother. At some point, I think people start to realize how weird that looks, though. And he sets her up with his uh, instructor in the Royal Air Force, because he's still, I guess, Canadian or British, who is the heir to the Sandeman Port family. You know, like the one that we got that little statue of <laughs> yeah that, that we talked about in the episode about another kind of quirky new york um actress what? uh jan bryant bartow yes if you have your strange familiars bingo counter here <laughs> i think we can put a little marker on one of the squares because um we talked at length about the weird similarity of us getting this the sandman decanter which is a guy in a black cape and a hat who looks just like he looks like the shadow mm-hmm. and jam bryant bartell one of the people described one of the specters in that house as looking like the figure from the sandman yeah. bottle and then it's just a walk away from gibson's house where the shadow was supposed to haunt his house it was very very interesting yes yeah so that's the, our, our uh, synchronicity which by the way we found the sandman decanter the same place we found the spindrift book pretty sure on the same day mm-hmm. if not the same day within a week mm-hmm. it was really close yeah so he calls off the engagement because he and here's the odd thing he said he claimed she wasn't a real woman weird and i don't know if that's because he found her so little girl-like or because she was maybe not particularly forthcoming with things that would make one 
appear to be a woman? Is that vague enough? That's very vague. That's that's so vague, I'm not sure what you mean. Maybe she didn't put out. <laughs> oh, gotcha. <laughs> but she continues to have an incredibly cr- close relationship with both her brother and her mother until they die. In the interim, in the 50s, her photography career is taking off. I mean, she's doing photographs for anywhere from local newspapers, like doing wedding photographs and everything, to doing some, some photographs for important magazines. And that's when she and her brother are deciding... Her mother sends her a box of some of her old toys, and in it is this little doll named Edith, after her mother. <laughs> and she fixes her up, um, makes her some new clothes, and her brother is about to go with her to a baby shower, and they're going to give a, a present to the baby, and they were going to give him these two bears. But by the time they came home, they had decided they wanted to play with the bears. And so he ended up having to buy a duplicate pair for the baby that they were going to see. But they keep the bears, and then pretty soon the bears and Edith the doll become the main players in this kind of photo book that she's making. And she poses them. It's not like a live-action movie. She's just posing the scenes and then writing the the narrative afterward about this very lonely doll and these two friends that come to rescue her from loneliness. But they get into all kinds of adventures, sometimes misadventures, and that's where the spanking scene comes in. (laughs) (laughs) And so she's actually very well-received. Like, every review I read of it today, the book gets amazing reviews at the time. They said it was perfect for the pinafore set. (laughs) And it it became this sort of iconic thing where people said it changed their lives, their thought on it. Wow. I love anything like where you could see like toys come alive, you know, yeah, that yeah. sort of like corduroy, velveteen rabbit trope that happens. Nutcracker. Yeah, it happens so much in childhood that, or even Pinocchio, the idea that um, there is realness inherent in, mm-hmm. in make believe. Yeah, yeah. Some people apparently took that a little too much to heart. <laughs> this is the other weird thing about Dare. She doesn't really age. Like, she's one of those people that you see pictures of her in her 60s, and you're like, oh, she could pass for 42. I was thinking that because you're telling me she's a model in the, what did you say, 30s? In the 30s, yeah. And I saw some pictures of her around the time she's writing the, the Lonely Doll books, I thought. Yeah, yeah. It, and she was gorgeous. Yeah, she was quite beautiful. Kept yeah. that long ponytail for a huge portion of her life. Yeah. She ends up being able to make a living off of these dolls become sort of like not a franchise but she's able to do spin-offs and, and continue her career her mother dies in the mid-70s and then her brother dies in the mid-80s and that's when things start to take a, an even odder turn for her she's living alone in an apartment in new york city and she apparently does not have a lot of those skills that adults have to suss out what situations are safe and which situations are not safe mm-hmm. she befriends a homeless man who unfortunately assaults her That's when she's taken eventually to a hospital. And then she lives the last years of her life in a hospital. Really? Yes. That's where the author of the book eventually um, meets up with her. She's in a hospital. Meanwhile, her apartment is like, how do people do this where they have like spare apartments? Maybe this is something that you could do then, but it's totally cost prohibitive now. Like if you stay like three days in the hospital, that's basically like your salary for two years. So I don't understand how someone could live in a hospital for an extended period of time. And she lives until 2001. She lives a very, like till her late 80s. So she lives an incredibly long life too. Maybe it's something about being a child for the bulk of your life that 
makes you more long-lived. Yeah, keeping that childlike uh, wonder aspect. and innocence. So, do we know how many lonely doll books she did? You know. Oh, I have to look it up. I don't know, you know off the top of my head, but they're and they're constantly reprinted. You know, now they'd probably take out the spanking scene, but. <laughs> <laughs> I, I encourage you, if you look up anything related to this story, at least look up that picture. <laughs> it's just, it's completely out of context. It doesn't make sense in our time. While you can read a, a world of Freudian things into that, you could also just say, it's just teddy bears and a doll. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's also just teddy bears and a doll. For all the sort of um, naughty sort of suggestion of it, my feeling about those books with it was that it was a genuine expression of, of innocence. Mm-hmm. Of the innocence that she really had in real life. I mean, she, while she looked like a little Barbie, kind of a tease, she was a sort of very naive, virginal character who maintained that for her whole life. So are you ready to start collecting dolls? Hey, there's a, I found out, um, I always like to look up what the word is for... A doll collector? For different kinds of collectors, because mm-hmm. I, you know, it is just fun to call clock collectors, horologists. Right. <laughs> so... Maybe you can help me with the planganologist. Is that the planganologist? Planganologist? Those are all O's? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say planganologist. Planganologist. That is a, a person who is a doll collector. A doll collector. Is it any more or less ridiculous than stamps or coins or photos or anything else? I don't think so. No, I mean, everybody has their thing. I mean, look at the antique store that you have your stand in, American Daydream. I mean a good percentage of their store is taken up by toys that I had when I was little, like Star Wars figures, or sort of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe wasn't my thing. I was a little too old for that. But I know, like, kids, like, right under my age, that they were into that, you know? So there's a big market for people. They want their childhood. They want that favorite toy, mm-hmm. usually just to put on the shelf. Yeah, yeah I just read, the recently, that, um, like, the derivation of the world word nostalgia has its roots in this sort of pain th- that hmm. that results from that. It's like I always think of nostalgia as being bittersweet because, like, you know, they always say you can't go home again. I, I think you can go home, but the home's going to look a lot different than it did before. Yeah. I just don't think you can revisit it. There's no successful way of getting everything back. You can't. But, I mean, I can totally see if something reminds you of a good time in your life or something that was your maybe distraction or maybe comfort, you know? Mm-hmm. I can imagine there being comfort then in collecting that. As long as it doesn't talk. <laughs> That's another episode. <laughs> our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M 
Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Before we get to our photo of the week, I want to give a thank you to Reliable CAD Solutions, who made a donation via PayPal. Thank you very much. That's a huge help. Now, Allison, you've stayed on theme two weeks in a row. I know. It's a lot of pressure. There's no pressure from me, by the way. This is, this is, I, <laughs> I, it's a self-imposed pressure because I, I like the themes. Every week, we, I go, so what's the photo of the week going to be? And Allison says, well, what's this week about? And then, you know, say werewolves or something. And she'll say, oh, I don't have any werewolf photos. <laughs> no one really expects you to have werewolf photos. If However, I had just like a whole trove of Bigfoot photos, I was like, I don't know, will this one do? <laughs> yeah, right. That is my dream, by the way. So we, we do a lot of digging through old photographs. Yeah. Like when, you know, junk shops, antique shops, flea markets, wherever. Wherever we come across them. And we'll dig through. And my dream is to find... <laughs> Not a Bigfoot photo necessarily, but an old photo like of an outdoor scene or something with like sort of something unknown in the background. Mm-hmm. And just it would be really, really cool. I would really like that. Putting that out there, universe, the, yeah. universe can reward me with that maybe. But no, this is on theme. This is a neat little photograph. And it's a girl with several dolls. Mm-hmm. I can't even, are there, just, just her arms are just full of dolls. <laughs> Yeah, some of them are huge, and then she's got a couple little sort of normal proportional size. And she's also carrying an umbrella, and she's outside. Yeah, it's great for the pinafore crowd. It is. Yep, absolutely. And I think this is like in the early days of home cameras. The brownie had this format, the square format. So I'm Mm. thinking this is then mounted onto the mounts that you can buy at the time. So early turn of the century, amateur photo that looks... I think it's nicely composed for an amateur photo, but... Yeah, no, it's really neat. She's outside somewhere. Yeah, she almost looks like she's in a little, like... Wait, is that an unknown figure back there in the, in the woods? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a, like a picnic area or something. Yeah, yeah. So, a little girl and her dolls. If you go to the show notes under this episode at strangefamiliars.com, there'll be an image of this. You can click on it. It'll take you to our Etsy shop, where you can buy this and other photos of the week. It's always amazing to me when a photo of the week that's been there for like three months or more will sell. <laughs> and I always wondered, like, did that person just hear that episode? Or is it someone that's looking for photos and happened to find it and has nothing, yeah, doesn't or, know a thing about that? Or did they just, someone stumbled across it and decide they like the image? But it's very interesting to me. 
while you're at our Etsy shop, make sure to check out my new art booklet containing the images I did, the illustrations I did while on uh, medical bed rest there called Monsters Under the Hospital Bed. 18 illustrations I did while I was... Uh, Lazing about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Re- recovering from my vicious MS attack, which I'm doing better, by the way. Also, at our Etsy shop, you can find some of my artwork, although I need to put more up there. And some restocks of sizes of t-shirts. Oh, yeah. Good to mention that. Yeah. We have every size right now, small through 3XL. So if you want a strange familiar shirt with the original Awoken Tree logo, Etsy is the place to get it. All sizes, small through 3XL right now. They tend to go quickly. So go ahead and jump on that. All of my other books are on Etsy. Lots of stuff there. Some of my music. Check it out. Etsy shop name is Lost Grave, but if you type in Strange Familiars, our stuff should come up. While you're on Etsy, make sure to check out Chad's shop, Rock Rabbit Outdoors, and check out our friends at Karmic Garden. They have the Strange Familiars and Flannerman scents for soaps, scented sanitizers, natural cleaners, beard balm, all that stuff. Karmic Garden, one word. Although, actually, I think if you type in Strange Familiars, their stuff comes up too. <laughs> Strange Familiars scented soap. Speaking of Chad. Is he a plangonologist? No. no. I mean, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> He's never revealed it. Yes. That's... yes. I imagine if, if Chad did collect dolls, they would, there would be axes involved. There would be axes mm-hmm. involved. And they'd be wearing plaid. Or yes. wool, at least. Yes. And they'd all know how to make a fire. They'd at least have mini fire kits with them. <laughs> and knowing Chad, they'd be workable. They'd be, yeah. they'd be, the, the contents of the fire kits. you can use this to start a fire, exactly. Allison. Chad and I went out to a place in Maryland the other night. This is a place we've talked about on patron episodes, not the main show. I started going there because of a crazy BFRO report that I saw on the on the BFRO website, a Bigfoot report. And I went there and my first time there there was there's some weird stuff. Some some weird stuff, including a photo I took of something in the woods. I just got this weird, creepy feeling that, that something was following me. I couldn't see anything. And I took out my cell phone. I just started taking pictures around me. And there's this, we'll say, human-shaped figure, I, you know, that uh, is there that I call the Great Gazoo because to me it looked like it was wearing the green gazoo helmet from, if you know the, the character of the Great Gazoo from the Flintstones. <laughs> Fred Flintstone's... Uh, oh, that's a deep cut. I did not yeah. know that character. <laughs> what, what was his profession down at the quarry? You don't remember the Great Gazoo? The Great Gazoo was in the later episodes of the Flintstones, and he was this alien that came and was sort of around. I, this sort of almost like this trickster figure. Was, <laughs> I think you're giving him too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> that was around Fred Flintstone, the Great Gazoo. Oh. Yes. Anyway... <laughs> We started calling this area Gazoo's Woods because of, of that, <laughs> which actually sounds way more horrifying than, than a, a cartoon character from the Flintstones. Chad and I go there the other night, and it was just bonkers. I'm talking pandemonium bonkers, scariest night at Site 7 bonkers. It was nuts. And Is it one of those nights where it makes you feel like you really have to go somewhere to relieve yourself, but you're like, well, I'm not going in the woods over there to relieve myself. (laughs) Totally. Totally. I held it. You're like, even if I end up pissing myself, I'll just, I'll wait it out. (laughs) 100%. 100%. 
It was so intense. I'm talking red glowing eyes. I'm talking stuff being thrown at us. Chad asked for something and got a vocal response. Oh, you didn't tell me any of this. You just said it was, quote, crazy. Yeah. Chad had left a certain something. So there's a, a, a cemetery involved in this, too, in the, in the woods. And Chad had left something. There, there seems to be this gifting area there, and we found weird stuff around, weird stuffed animals. He had left something there. And he said, and I don't, he should have phrased this better. He says out to the darkness as we're looking at these, like, red glowing eyes. He says, I left you something up there. I would like something in return. Not please. Mm-hmm. Says, I would like something in return. And this immediately, this cry, this weird cry comes back at us. Do you have it recorded? The recorder was running. I haven't listened yet. So I, oh, you don't want to? No, I want to. I, uh-huh. I just, I'm working on this week's episode. Oh, okay. You know, I haven't had time to do it. I didn't want to do two on-site episodes in a row. If I listen to it, don't do it at night, please. <laughs> Let's listen during the day. But then... Yeah. So we kept hearing stuff all around us all night. And we're like, how is this thing? The woods are pretty open. We could see mm-hmm. 30 yards into the woods. Mm-hmm. It's not like real, like, yeah, brushy It's not super woods. dense there. I've been there once before yeah. in, in the daytime. So we're hearing these sounds and we're, we're shining our lights. And we should be able to see whatever's there because the sounds are right up on us. But it would be, just be like one crack or one sound we'd hear. And eventually I realized we were hearing stuff and we could hear it arc through the leaves and then hit. So you'd hear it. Leaves, 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 leaves in the trees and then hit onto the ground. So these were things being thrown at us. Oh. Some of the sounds. So after Chad asked for his gift and gets it or gets this response, I said, throw something at us. Do not hit us, but throw something at us. A second or two later, right beside me, something hits. And Chad's like, we're done. We got to go. <laughs> we got to go. It was intense. Might be next week's episode. It's coming soon. I'm going to have to tell the whole story that went before because, like I said, a lot of this kind of played out on patron episodes. Okay. So I'll lay the groundwork. I'll have to read that BFRO report, and then we'll go to the audio that we recorded that night. It's great to be able to be up and about again. Mm-hmm. Didn't feel like you could move fast enough yet, though? No way. I, if I had had to run, I don't mean... I, At night in the woods? Yeah. And then... I come home. I can't believe I didn't wake you up last night. Mm-hmm. I had this nightmare that I'm there in Gazoo's woods, mm-hmm. as we call it. I didn't see whatever it was. Chad and I were there, and just something was coming through the woods like a freight train, just directly at us. And I woke up not with a scream, but with a start. I definitely like mm-hmm. a loud like ah, you know. Yeah. I, I woke up. Usually, when I wake you up, you have trouble getting back to sleep. So I thought for sure you could be mad at me in the morning, but apparently I didn't wake mm-hmm. you up. But I'm telling Chad about this. Now, we both had nightmares of pandemonium, too. Mm-hmm. And we agreed this was very much like pandemonium and that it just things Circular. seemed to be going around us. We went in at one point. We saw eye shine from the cemetery and we followed it down. And it's like I got really freaked out because you could hear things come around both sides of the sun. I was like, mm-hmm. we're being closed off. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Chad and I both had these nightmares about pandemonium, both while we were there and about what I called the pandemonium hag, this old woman. We both had these like horrible nightmares about this this hag-like figure. So I tell Chad, I was like, oh, I had a nightmare. That's night. He's like, I had a dream too about a Bigfoot with glowing eyes and wearing a helmet. He's like, it wasn't like Gazoo's helmet, but he was still, he was wearing a helmet. I'm like, that is just, that is weird. So we'll get into that in an upcoming show. I'm hoping the audio caught 
at least some of what we heard because it was nutty. There were there were owls loud. Oh my <laughs> gosh, these owls were just going off so loud. It was weird. It was just a, a weird night. And uh, can I'm, I can I offer a potential debunking already? Yeah, sure. Were there cicadas around? They weren't like there flying was, through the. There was no the, cicada noise. There were cicadas there, uh, but they were on the trees, like just coming out of the shells. Okay, so they weren't like. You know, when you said something was like you could hear it falling through the leaves and then down, I'm thinking, you know how like locusts yeah, and no. cicadas like hit like and then around. No, and it, I did look, by the way, for whatever landed beside me, but my attention was split. We were these eyes, we had them in our lights, and I had a headlamp and Chad had a flashlight. You both saw them. We both saw them and we were focused on them, but I, I lost them. He moved to get a, a, another look, and I lost, and I didn't know where they went. I didn't see where they went. And then something got thrown out. I didn't want to take a lot of time to look on the mm-hmm. ground for whatever hit because we're I'm trying to track whatever's mm-hmm. in the woods. And then so the path there is like you can't walk side by side, really. You kind of have to walk in line. This is kind of Chad led the way in. And then when we decided it's time to go. So I'm, I'm leading the way out because I was, you know, slightly behind him. He stops to shine his light. And I just hear him say, Oh, those those eyes got a lot closer behind me. <laughs> it was just wow, just really, really weird, intense night. So, upcoming episode, we'll get into that. You guys can look forward to that. It's great to be out there again, but <laughs> part of me is like, wow. Did you take it easy on me? For like if I was if I was still you know, crippled up, I wouldn't be out here surrounded by this incredibly intense and scary uh, experience. But uh, that's what I'm here for. We'll be back soon with another episode of Strange Familiars. Maybe it'll be that one. Don't forget, patrons are getting two episodes a month now. Patreon.com slash Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. If you like the music and you want to hear more or you want to purchase music by Stone Breath, you can find more at stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars Gathering Group. We're on Instagram, at strangefamiliars. And of course, you can always track us down on the web at strangefamiliars.com.
Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.